to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. Today, we have a very interesting conversation because it tapped the quote-unquote wayback machine for me. Um, I remember uh, being a college student and being immersed in music. And at the time when I was in college, there was a whole host of Christian bands who were really who were really redefining what it meant to be Christian musicians. So people like Bebo Norman, Cademan's Call, and later Derek Webb. And then there was one person in the middle of it all. There was another guy named Randall Goodgame who was fantastic, but there was one person in the middle of it all who I always found fascinating. And that person's name is Justin McRoberts, and he's our guest today. And so I spent a lot of time with his music as I was growing in those college years of my faith. Uh, Justin has written an incredible amount of music, but now spends his time as a pastor, as a consultant, and he's written several books. His most recent one is called May It Be So, and it is a guide using both art with the artist Scott Erickson and words to help us to spend time and and move into and dwell inside the Lord's Prayer. And what's so wonderful about that is the prayer is so common that a lot of us repeat it maybe or read it and don't even think about what it says. But the, the artwork in this book and the commentary helps you to spend time and live inside of it and to really feel the power of this prayer. Our conversation with Justin is going to go all over the place. We're going to cover all sorts of things from music to wisdom to what it means to create liturgy, what it means to experience liturgy. But most importantly, it is about the fact that formation it happens not in a monastery. It does happen there, not just in a monastery, I should say, and not just in those pinnacle points where we get away on a retreat or we read the book that changes the way we think, but in the everyday pieces of life. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with our guest today, Justin McRoberts. Justin, man, it's a pleasure to have you on the Otherwise Podcast. Thank you for taking the time today. Well, thank you for having me. I I have full disclosure. My wife, before I started talking to you, said, I need you to not go all fanboy on Justin. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I remember, and I'm about to do something that you may enjoy, maybe not. Uh, I we'll remember a concert with you and Randall Goodgame and Andrew Peterson. Yeah. And I just remember that night being a very profound uh, moment. And so, yeah, so that's been in, in my mind and in part of my like story and tradition for a long time. So I don't know if that makes you feel older. I don't know what that does, but you know, that, that I, was I'm some in time all that. Ago. Do you remember what, what town was that? Do you remember? It was in Illinois. I think it was cent- somewhere in central Illinois. I can't okay. remember which town though. So yeah, we did. I did a, a good number of shows with Andrew. I played only some with Randall. Um, and it's possible, it, is it possible that Bebo was involved in that show as well? Bebo Norman, it could have been. Ah. So there was a really early on, um, the second uh, supporting tour I did was uh, Bebo Norman, Andrew Peterson, and myself. Um, and then the second half of that tour turned into Bebo Norman, Derek Webb, and myself, or maybe it was flipped, but it was like Cademan's was just launching Bebo at the time. Mm. And they, they, they sent, they, they helped fund the tour and I'd been out with Cademan's and 
and then they put me on a tour with Bebo and those were, I'll be honest, man, those were profound days for, I think a lot of people like listeners. It was a really strong era for storytelling, for art, for communication, for like that market connection between creators and listeners. Uh, there's just a, a beautiful symbiosis there where with like the kind of the budding of the independent artist world yeah. for, you know, for the Christian marketplace. And, you know, it, it didn't go the way I think a lot of us were hoping it would go, but there was a beautiful time when, <laughs> when the things were, people were making money at, while doing things that actually mattered and we didn't have to make some of the weird choices the folks have to make now. Yeah. Gosh, you'd say that about storytelling and I just think about the songs that you've written. And for those of you who don't know who are listening, um, Justin's a musician. <laughs> we didn't yes. just <laughs> done, some, done some music in the past as well. Yes, in the past. Yes. Um, to hear, I think it was the first time I heard Andrew do the song love and thunder live and some other, some songs of yours you have a song about St. Francis that has always been deeply, at least it hints at the Francis prayer. Um, yeah. that song has always been just tremendous. Uh, and so hearing all of that, that it just draws me back. I, it, I just wrote a book on memory, and so all this is pretty fresh, but it draws me back to that a period of time where I think what you're thinking, there was a there was a richness to that particular era, and I just wonder, you know, every one of us wants to think our time was the best time, but yeah, there's a richness to that time that I, I hope I hope for the next generation, for another generation, they can recapture that yes. in one way or another. Yeah, you know, and it, I'm I'm... I'm not someone who makes these kinds of statements just to make them, but there really was, there are times when there's sort of this culturally, like culture wide divine movement that like, you don't necessarily know is happening at the time, but like something really, something really good was happening. <clears throat> and that was one of those eras. And there's this culture of people and Andrew singles of the world continue to live that out. And, um, that you know even randall with what you know what randall's doing with uh slugs and bugs like there in andrew's career continue to continue to, to to sprout out that direction and i mean there is there were seeds planted during that time of kind of this odd bravery that it was a little bit of a uh, it was a little bit of a risk that all of us were taking but we were young and stupid enough to take it like we're just like well we're gonna go out and we're gonna write songs about marriage and sex and poverty and let's see if people stick around and and then and folks are like weird because my life is made up of things like poverty and marriage and sex and money and like these songs really speak to me and like those seeds that were planted during that time really did like have grown into some fascinating i would suggest like really helpful like fruits in different corners of uh, like, yeah, of Christian culture where as, you know, as the centerpieces of Christian culture have been less trustworthy, there are actually more full grown plants and trees in which people can go take shade. And I think a lot of the seeds were planted during that time among those people. Would you have said, maybe this is a retrospect question, looking back, would you have said that you in your music you were doing at the time, especially in that window, but continuing on, would you have said that you were writing a, a form of liturgy? I would not have then. Um, 
I think I, I, I think I would say something along those lines now, more so informed by uh, David Dark's understanding or teaching around what it means to create or to participate in liturgy. Um, in other words, like my understanding of what it means to, to create and participate in liturgy is far broader now. I get now that part of what I was doing was, was doing that. At the time, I think I would have just said I was trying to create language for the practice of faith um, and it, it left it kind of nebulous like that, mostly because I was trying to figure it out too. I didn't really know. Um, but yeah, as I look back, it's liturgical. How do people live? How do people live together? How do we forge and find meaning? Um, those are all liturgical questions, and that's the stuff that we were up to. Yeah. That might be the first mention of David Dark on this podcast, which is a Oh huge, man. It's a huge poverty. I I'm glad we could yeah, that. Let's, yeah, let's let's up the ratio. <laughs> well, with the gift of time, uh, a lot of times we're able to access certain pools of wisdom, but I ask this question of every guest. That word is kind of kind of slippery. If you yes. were going to define wisdom, where would you begin? How would you start that definition? One of my great mentors, um, this guy named Mark Laberton, uh, defines wisdom as the character of God in action in context, and that it's all three things. That it's not just the character of God and some idea some like this is what God is like that this is what's got this is what God is like in action and oftentimes for folks like me people of privilege we tend I tend to stop there this is this is the character of God in action the third part has been the part that has been the most important learning curve and the most definitive and character forming learning curve which is in context that the character of God in action in context means that wisdom in the black tradition is is different than wisdom in the suburban white tradition. And that there are threads that tie the thing together, but the context of wisdom, uh, the context in which wisdom is revealed change, changes the expression of that wisdom. So the character of God in action, in context, is uh, my understanding of wisdom. So it has a, and this word is really, I use this with some caution, it has sort of a relativism to it in the sense of like it's it's practiced differently and it's wisdom itself is not a monolithic thing it's not something that's like every place every time every way this is right it's 80, not dead you know there's some it's wisdom living. that's true in other places yeah. you know there might be some bleed over but not as a full single concept it is not a monolith it, it's it is maybe even the way the, you know the sacred scripture defines and and relates to wisdom wisdom is a woman wisdom is is a is a is a person and is feminine um is highly relational so like i would move away i agree with you i would move away from a word like relative and move towards relational the wisdom is relational that has that actually has relationships in other words i'll say it like this um wisdom is is uh is has personhood to it and therefore like remains integrous regardless of the fact that it is different in different contexts. So I'm Justin McRoberts. I'm here in my neighborhood in Martinez, California, and I'm a certain, you know, I have certain behavioral patterns when I'm among people who are like closer to my age range, same place in life. But 
if and when I'm around someone like, uh, uh, so in a couple of weeks, I'll be with a bunch of college students up in the Northeast. My behaviors will, will slightly change. I'm the same person. I'm not manipulating, but I'm, my relationship in that place changes the way to some degree I speak, changes some of the words I use, changes some of my intentionality. I think wisdom works that way as well. That like this, that's the same wisdom is rooted in the same divine core, but it is expressed and understood and related to differently depending on the room it's in. That's so helpful because I'm beginning to think a couple of different things and they they tie together. I'm beginning to believe more and more deeply that the heart of the Christian life is spiritual formation. Yeah. And that the primary outcome of spiritual formation is wisdom. That's fascinating. And yeah. so I, I'm hearing that in you because there's such an incarnational piece to that, relational and incarnational. When, when God sought to shape people, he sent someone in Jesus who would have to live in these contexts. Yeah. Like it was always divinity in context. And so yeah. to be formed around that means to understand that you're, you aren't going to act or react the same way in every situation, but knowing, leaning on the wild goose, the Celtic version, the, Holy, the Celtic mm -hmm. description of the Holy Spirit, leaning yeah. on that for wisdom in each and every situation. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really, really thick stuff. That's good. Yeah, and it go and it goes to I mean it, it's sort of the the counterbalance to certainty and knowledge. Wisdom ends up being a counterbalance to to certainty and knowledge. Insofar as in again in a wisdom text that it begins with the fear of the Lord, which has to do with limitations. That wisdom begins with knowing where I end, and if that's the case, then my primary practice, if I want to become a, a wise person, is is in limitation listening attention paying. I'm, I'm responding to the world around me in patience and in slowness, as opposed to constantly moving into uh, like whatever space I'm going into and carrying what I believe is wisdom, like a tool or like a weapon. That's not wisdom. That's knowledge. That's certainty. Wisdom moves into a space uh, or a wise person moves into a space, is invited into a space, pays attention, listens, knows context and responds to what God is doing in and among a group of people or in and among a particular place uh, in a particular time. So with that in mind, how are you these days? What, how would you characterize the work that you're doing these days? We're going to talk about the book that you and Scott Erickson yeah. have produced, but also what, how would you characterize the vocational wisdom that you're exercising these days? So for the longest time I have, and I'm still relatively comfortable with this, like I pastor, uh, so I planted a church in 1998 with some friends. And so like there's the highly definitive pastor, pastor role, where there's like, you know, the, the, the title. But even in the way I've lived uh, on the road in retreat leading or the way, I, like I'll, I'll coach artists and pastors and ministers over Skype or over the phone, and I'm pastoring. Um, I, I tend to steer clearer of the uh, of the term uh, like spiritual director because I don't have a certificate and it's an actual job. It's a better phrase than pastor, just at least for me, just because like pastor comes along with all these uh, entanglements, these cultural entanglements that I end, end up trying to undo in order to do the job of the work I want to be doing. But <laughs> spiritual director, it's like, it's an actual thing. People get certificates for it. 
So I pastor, I care, which means most of what I do, again, comes back to you. I listen. Um, I, and, and then I try as best I can to faithfully and lovingly respond to, uh, to the activity of God in, through, and among particular people in particular places. So at like small example, like before I came on this podcast, like I went, I went back and listened to four or five year podcasts. Um, and then I was, uh, I read a, a chunk of your book on memory to, to know what it is that like, this is what, this is what you're doing. So like, how do I actually fit in this context? Do I have, you know, what can I actually bring to the table? I knew you're going to ask questions about wisdom. And so I look back at my notes and conversations I had with Mark about wisdom, because that's where most of my understanding of wisdom comes from. So it's like knowing where I'm going to, where I'm going to be and speaking with people, paying attention to what God is doing there and then responding to that. That's really my work, whether that's in songwriting or coaching or in authoring or running my own podcast or event series. I'm listening and then I'm responding in faithfulness and kindness and wisdom as best I can. What did you, uh, what did you hear? Maybe what did you and Scott hear? that you that caused you to respond with the book you've written called may it be so 40 days with the lord's prayer what was the what was the voice or the prompting you were responding to in creating this so um part of our communal practice my by our i mean the my tribe of people here in the east san francisco bay area every lent we would dive into lent pretty full force as a really wonderful season in which all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life uh, get religious for 40 days uh, and like they're okay with it. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quit the internet for 40 days or I'm going to quit chocolate or I'm going to, you know, stop talking politics for 40 days or whatever the thing is. Like they enter it. People just feel freely enter into this somewhat religious formational practice for 40 days. And so we saw it as an opportunity to not just, you know, turn in on ourselves and do religious stuff among religious people for one more religious season. But how do we create resources and doorways for folks who are paying attention to and responding to this, this spiritual inclination? So one of the ways I wanted to do that, you know, we would do some kind of a fast that worked for any number of people. And then we would tie the fruits of that fast to something that was recognizably valuable to, you know, religious and non-religious alike. So, you know, uh, blood water mission was our primary thing where we would, you know, fast from all beverages, but water, and then turn all that money in to blood water to, to provide clean water. And anyone can get on board with that. So we would do that as a congregation and then we have parties and it was great. The same time, culture is ultimately like, is like rooted in language and is galvanized by language, and it's it's unidentifiable if you can't name it. So I wanted to provide like some form of religious language for the practice of Lent that felt, uh, yeah, that landed differently was more useful. So for about four, well, for three years, um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, I would post these short prayers that honestly sounded and felt more like prayer actually sounded and felt in me 
as opposed to the way it was supposed to, the way I was, you know, trained or what have you. And, and you know, this man, you're a writer. Like you've, like there are times you do stuff and, um, and it works decently well and things happen that like some, some of the things you hoped would happen, happen, then some things you didn't expect to happen, happen. This was one of those rare moments when the thing I was hoping would happen, happened like pretty much exactly, which was that folk, like religious people were decently comfortable with the language, but folks who had no interest whatsoever in the practice of faith in institutional settings were responding, clicking, liking, retweeting, messaging me like where are these coming from it was like resonating with people's souls which is where the phrase that you probably read in the book so that we pray because we're human and not because we're religious what i was trying to tap into is like hey i just think this is true about us as humans and that when religion does its best work it actually highlights galvanizes and assists what's already happening in the human soul as opposed to like creating it from scratch so what I, again, it was like, I was listening. I, I would put things out for, like I said, for two and a half, three years. And I was listening to the way people were responding to this. And then I decided, I guess, I think that's the way I want to say that. <laughs> I think I decided, I don't remember. I think I decided that if this was a, if this was a real thing, that a book has a kind of gravitas that Twitter and Facebook just don't. Um, and it's a book does the work of authentication, I guess that if someone's following a blog, there's a certain kind of gravity in their lives about this is a thing I do or read, but if someone buys a book and they've got it in their backpack, there's a kind of ownership a person has over that kind of knowledge or experience. Uh, and I wanted to take this two and a half year, three year experiment and make it book form and see what happened in people's lives then. That's kind of how it started. It's it's interesting to me the overlap between the life of the artist and I think a lot I think and I think uh often it's believed that like artists just you just wake up in the morning and write a song and it's fantastic. Yeah, right. It's not that it's the 35 you write before that one that you never touch again right. that lead to that. And so there's that ritual and habits and and you know you can read tons on like famous artists and their rituals and habits and some of them are so strange yes and oddball and involves a lot of methamphetamine and, and things like that but um some of them there's that ritual and that habit thing that makes creative work run but there's also what i hear you talking about is how people who may not even identify as religious are stepping into a ritual and habit at lent yeah and they're seeing the the human value of that. How do you how did you as an artist approach the creative act of putting together a book on something like the Lord's Prayer that has that is well traveled ground and rightly so. Yeah. Uh, but how did you engage with that from a creative standpoint? Again, um a little a, a predominantly paying attention. So um we once we were in the conversation about prayer after the first book um and it landed with people uh and folks bought it into their lives and responded and shared it and churches picked it up and used it and it was it had legs which is again like there's a market element to that which is like hey you created a product that works but in all honesty for us i'll speak on my behalf 
it really was more important to have done something that that um that worked for people in their own practice of uh, religion in their own lives. And so watching folks respond and uh, eat it up and pass it on. So now we were in, and what I didn't want to have happen is like, we is that I did this book or we did this book, this one book on prayer. We really wanted there to be a conversation like, hey, if this is a resource uh, for you, if this is a tool, uh, then, uh, how can we further that conversation and how, how can we further that practice? Well, if we're going to talk about the practice of prayer in the Christian context, there's this thing Jesus did <laughs> where, where these adult men came and said what we think people were saying without, you know, totally verbalizing it, which is full grown adults who've been around the Christian religion and some for, you know, for most of their lives coming to this, honest recognition like i don't know what the hell i'm doing i don't like i don't like i don't feel good about prayer i don't really connect i don't think i've ever heard from god i don't think i would know if i did uh i don't know what to pray for necessarily i've got these things that i do sometimes it works or you know what it's which is what the disciples said was that at some point like two plus years in they went to jesus and said can you teach us to pray um so I wanted to enter into the Lord's prayer, the gift that he gave when he, when they asked that and say, well, if we're going to have a conversation about prayer, let's look and see what Jesus did. And there, you know, it's a truckload of books about the Lord's prayer and some, some really, really good ones and some not so great ones. We wanted to do something that was more in the spirit of the first book, which was that content, the way I understand it, like neither one of these books, the Lord's, you know, the, the 40 days in the Lord's prayer, may it be so, or, um, or you know, prayer four days of practice. Neither one of them are, are content in and of themselves. The content is what's happening in the heart, the mind, the spirit, the lives of readers. That's actual content. What's God doing in a human soul? That's actual content. What I get to create is a resource that helps to dig into and excavate that work in someone else's life. And insofar as that's the case, let's reapproach the Lord's prayer with that in mind. So instead of worrying, and these are good questions to ask, like what's the Greek? And how does it connect with the syntax of the time of the thing and the, these words related? Like, oh, that's fine. It's just, I'm not, a, I'm not an academic. What I'm concerned about is when you pray the words, our father, what happens in your soul? Mm. When someone says our father, there's the word father first and foremost for a lot of people. And we address this lightly in the book, which is like for a lot of folks, like they don't want to see God as a father because they had a terrible dad. And that's just a massive hangup. And okay, well, let's just talk about that for a second. Um, and like, let's let that's a work that's happening in you. You've got a wound. You've got bad memories. Like, I think that's part of prayer. But even before that, when you say the word "our," do you recognize that you came to this prayer most likely because most of us come to prayer because of things that would otherwise isolate us? And the first thing you do is recognize you're part of the family of God. So, like, what happens in a person when they're praying through this prayer? So we decided. I decided to go through the Lord's Prayer and do kind of seven movements and talk about this is what it looks like for these words to unearth things in me. So I write these seven stories about the ways that different movements in the Lord's Prayer get inside my soul and unpack me. And again, it was like, it was more setting a tone and setting an example. Here's a way to go about praying. What does this do in you? As opposed to here, here are the words to use. Here's the new formula. Try this one out for a season. 
How do you, how did you see it? What kind of intersections did you see between the experience of songwriting and the experience of, uh, of writing prose, devotional oh, prose? It's so, di- it's so different. <laughs> so it's like, it's like a whole, it is a completely, it really is in my practice. It is an entirely different, they're two completely different worlds. And they like they literally my baby, and they are in senses like they're just different languages. Like they like my yeah, music is far more physical for me. Um, I haven't written music for like a few years, and I'm back at it, and like, it's just this very visceral, um, shapeless, very bodily experience. There's like my hands on the guitar and the sound in the room. Like it's very it's and it's really about that. Whereas prose writing is like, it's, it's not that it's unemotional, but uh, it just doesn't have that same, I'm, it's more, there's more stillness, there's less movement. There's such entirely different languages and practices. They really don't feel like the same thing at all. Is the, is the challenge of self-doubt and self-critique as strong for you in writing as it is in music? I'm assuming you have that. I mean, I yeah, have that, so I'm assuming everybody Totally. Has that, but... So, um... So it's a, it's a, this, I don't know if this is weird. It's um, the way that has gone is this. So I, at some point I realized uh, with music specifically, like I'm at some point, it, like I peaked, like I'm as good, was as good. Probably, I'm, I'm not as good as I used to be at like at music, at singing, at writing. At some point I peaked, I'm done. Like that's, that's as good as I'm going to get. Um, whereas with, with, storytelling writing um i think i might i think the ceiling for that is considerably higher so in that context like I, i'm i'm less i was more concerned about the, the performance orientation of music and songwriting for the longest time and then as <laughs> like as I, I just, as I realized that i crossed some sort of finish line as like a 40 some on year old white christian male like this isn't my cultural moment for music. Like it was like it's just like it's just not my it's not my jam. Um, no pun intended. But like, <laughs> so like the pressure is off with with music. Like I don't I don't feel it anymore. I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna put it on the table, and I really don't care. Um, I used to it used to be like, and and most of that was tied to the fact that if it didn't do well, it wouldn't it wouldn't impact people's lives, but also like it wouldn't sell, and I couldn't pay for a mortgage and to put, you know, food on my family and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's switched. And most of my anxiety about creativity, some of it is, some of it is, a, and this is going to sound a little weird, but some of it is a matter of like just normal self-doubt. We're like, I'm not sure I'm the right person to do this. I'm not sure I'm up for the task. Um, that's not as loud, honestly, as I really want this to work because I'm I'm spending a whole lot of time doing it. Uh, I'm going to put a whole lot of time and energy into this book. I'm going to put a whole lot of time and energy into like writing this this one person show or this retreat model. And I I really want this to work because I'm put because I'm only going to be alive for so freaking long, and I don't want to waste my time doing things that don't work. Like most of my anxiety comes from that. It's not. It really, honestly, I mean this. It really no longer is a matter of like, I'm going to feel embarrassed if it's not great work. 
or I'm just going to like wallow in self-doubt. I want it to work because I only have so much time to live on the planet and I don't want to screw around with stuff that it, that like isn't going to land with people, isn't going to move the needle and isn't going to take, you know, and isn't going to sell well enough to pay for you know the investments I've made in like my family and my life and neighborhood. Yeah. The lesson I'm pulling and feeling for this, not only from you, but that I'm resonating in myself, but I'm also hearing for people who are listening is how much wisdom involves you have to tangle with your ego. Yeah. And figure out that the ego is good. It's kept you up. And there's plenty of people who've written on this, but you know, the ego has got you to this point. It's healthy. It's protected you, but it can't drive. No. Your ego can't drive for the rest of your life. So if you, you can't live your entire life believing that it has to be, you know, if the music doesn't, you know, coming to a point of a finish line and saying, you know, this isn't my cultural moment and I need to amplify the voices of others on that side while at the yep. same time there is work left to do. How, there's a story in the book and I think it illustrates this pretty well. Uh, in the section where you do a reflection on the Our Father, mm-hmm. on the word, on the the phrase Our Father, and you talk about the first time you ever went to a therapist, <laughs> can you mm-hmm. can you just share that for the people who haven't yeah. read this yet? Because I feel like that it sort of encapsulates what we've just been saying, only in a very practical sure. way. Um, yeah. So um, I've been to. Uh, group therapy before my mom and I uh, went to group therapy uh, together for about a year after we lost my dad. My dad, uh, a number of years ago in my twenties, uh, ended his own life with a handgun depression oriented suicide, and so we went to group therapy to sit through and talk through that. And there was a kind of safety one because I was there's kind of the ego, again, ego protection that I was taking my mom to therapy and I happened to be going along. Uh, and I was in a room with other people. It was a completely different thing when, and you, I, you're totally going to resonate with this, when after several years, close to a decade of uh, vocational ministry, direct ministry as a pastor, I realized that there was just a mountain of crap I had no capacity to handle deal with i was carrying stuff i didn't want to be carrying i didn't i i was just lost in other people's emotions and expectations i was a huge mess and uh and i i didn't tell anyone i was going to go to therapy uh because i i was still caught up in the notion that i was too strong to be weak i needed to get my crap together because i was needed um, I needed to get my head on straight so I could get back to work, that kind of thing. Hmm. So uh, it was sort of like it, <laughs> it was like it was like the groom or the bride that like wants to shed those ten pounds before the wedding, and it's like it's not actually about health. Um, so I just wanted to go get my crap wired. So I didn't tell anyone that I was going to go to therapy. And I like as I tell the story in the book, I get into my wife. I left the house and I was, I was like, I'm going going shopping. She's like, you're going shopping? I'm like, yeah, I gotta get clothes. So like, you don't even know what size you are. It's like I'm a I'm man man size. I don't know. <laughs> I'll figure it out. I'm gonna try stuff on. So I bounce and I get to the neighborhood where the therapist office is, and I park across the street as opposed to in the therapist office parking lot, and uh, intentionally. And then I walk towards the Whole Foods to pretend like I'm going to go shopping and then take a hard right 
like through a little alleyway. We've got my hood on over my head and I don't take the elevator so it's because I want to see people. I would take the stairs. I get to the third floor and like I bounce as fast as I can down the hallway. And what I did not consider, which is so stupid, is that there would be a waiting room and there would be other people in there because there are multiple therapists in this office. <laughs> and so I open the door and there are like six or seven other people, five or six other people sitting in the, in the room and I pull my hood off and all these people then make eye contact with me. And the, the woman sitting closest to me, probably in her mid sixties, early seventies, pulls her bag off the chair next to her and sets on the floor. She pats the chair with her hand. She says, you can sit here. And it wasn't just in my soul the way I was, and I don't know how much she intended to be this, but this is how my, how my guts hurt it, which was, I was welcomed uh, to be part of this group of people, this family of people who are fully humans, um, who I now shared my humanity with. And I was in, in fact invited to become more human the way they were becoming more human. And that actually that, that's when the therapy honestly started and these things started to unravel in my heart. We're like, oh, it's not just okay for me to have uh, frailties and weaknesses and limitations. It's necessary. If I'm going to be fully human, I have to be limited. I have to be frail. I have to come to my own ends. And the thing that honestly like encouraged me, encourages me to do that is that I'm I share that with other human beings. So when I pray the, the Our Father, when I pray the, the, the Lord's Prayer, that word hour calls me back to that memory that anything I experience in life is a thing I'm going to in some way or shape or form share with other human beings. That, that I'm not a special snowflake. I'm, I am one among many, many people who have been betrayed, who have... I'm not the only dad in the freaking world who can't get his son to do X, Y, and Z. I'm not the only husband who can't remember to, you know, A, B, and C. I'm not the only neighbor. I'm not the only pastor. I'm not the only musician. I'm not the only, like, I'm not the only anything. I share my struggles and my victories. I share my entire life. I share my humanity with the family of God. That's what our does for me. That is so beautiful. Thanks, man. Beyond beyond just captivating that phrase, I mean, I think there's so much permission giving. Because as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing that there was there was part of my pastoral life where I would have thought the same thing you did. Like, therapy is for people who are really messed up. I just need yeah. to be stronger or more proactive or, you know, have a better planning system. And just the permission giving of sometimes you need sometimes you need to fall into somebody else's conversation yeah and let them carry you a bit and that that has been such a heartbeat for me just trying mm. to dismiss the stigma that going to a therapist somehow means that you're a not faithful b not strong yeah so i i love that you tied that in to the lord's prayer as and it's it's a part of i don't think jesus was necessarily teaching people how to pray i think he was making space yeah I Just totally agree. It was, it was, it was more like providing scaffolding for or lattice work for the thing to grow. It's not the specific words. It's like, what is this? How do you wrap your heart and your mind around this practice in a way that in a way in which you can grow into it? Yeah. 
I think that's what the prayer is. For you and for Scott, the the artist that has so beautifully illustrated, um, given some visuals to meditate on in this book, for you all, what is the gift you hope this book gives to to people? More so than anything else, freedom. Um, the freedom to try. Uh, the freedom to... Yeah, the freedom to try is probably the best, the most concise thing. Like, give it a shot. See what happens. Um, I, I think that sense of... In my experience as a as a minister in multiple settings, the the lack of freedom folks experience in just the effort is a huge spiritual depravity. In other words, like it's not just a matter of getting it right because there isn't for folks. It's not just like oh, I, I don't want to get it wrong. It's more like um, how should I say this? Folks tend to treat and I am the same way, folks tend to treat religious life um, like there's gonna, there's this one way or this one answer, there's this tiny, and I get it because it comes from the whole narrow road thing, but there's just this one way, this one direction, these really specific steps, and if you don't figure them out, you're screwed in some way, shape, or form. And they're like, you just hope that grace covers the gap between how stupid you are and how and like how much God wants from you. And that's the way people tend to approach, honestly tend to approach religious practice, prayer. And I just, I think that's garbage. Um, that I think the effort, uh, the will to enter in like, is worship. And that's what ends up being fully received. It's not the, it's not your execution. It's not your, it's not even like your ability to remain faithful to the practice over years. It's like, do you have the will to get off the freaking ground when you've, when you've quit? Like, you know, the, the proverbial like 20 minutes that you and I spend when we haven't been in the practice of prayer for a while. And we like the first 20 minutes of prayer for this, it's like apologizing to God for not showing up. And I said, it's just, it just, I have this deep sense of the spirit. And like, Hey, I know, will you shut up? Like, I get it. I heard, I, I know, but I was around for that. I know I was around for that too. I know I, I heard you. Okay. I'm just gonna let you finish. Like just get up and try and then try again. And then try again, and then try again, and that—that's really actually all there ends up ever really being, is just try and then try again. And it's not a matter of like try and you will fail, and when you fail, God will carry you the rest of the way. I don't I, like. I'm not concerned about the second part. It's just feel the freedom to try and receive the love of God as God receives you just trying. And I honestly think that that's like the overwhelming majority of religious practice. I love it, man. That's so encouraging. Thanks. Thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for the book you've written and uh, thanks for the conversation. I know people are going to grow and, and hopefully carry away the permission to, to try. Yeah, dude. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Well, thanks for making space. I'm glad I, I got, we uh, got a little morning time here. Justin's just a beautiful spirit, isn't he? Man, so many good things to chew on. I hope that you found some things in there to chew on as well. Uh, the one question that I think I would ask is, 
He talked a lot about attentiveness. And I wonder, what is it this week or this month or even today that you are paying attention to most? What's the thing when you have nothing else to think about or when you should be thinking about something else, your mind goes back to and fixates there? It can't leave it. What are, what are the things that you are intentionally choosing to put your uh, attentiveness on, your energy? What are the things that God might be inviting you to pay attention to today? And what is the wisdom inside of those things? Because that's ultimately the, the point of this is it's finding God in the context that you're in, the family you're in, the job you're in, the emotional space you're in, the psychological health space that you're in. It's all, wisdom is all about finding God in the middle of that, not somewhere else. And so maybe today, just reflect on God, what, what is it that I am paying attention to today? And where are you in the midst of this day? And how can I turn my attention to you? So we were talking today with Justin McRoberts. He's a prolific musician, also a church planter, a retreat leader, an author, along with Scott Erickson of the book, May It Be So, a book that dives into the Lord's Prayer. And this is not a long book. It's a very practical book. It's a book that I used um, as a daily practice. So just a a piece of the prayer a day, a piece of artwork to reflect on. And, And those daily places where we can focus our attention on God are really helpful. There are a lot of resources for that. One of the ones that I'm using currently is a book called The Divine Hours that has written prayers for every season. And so that's one way every day that I focus my attention on what God is up to uh, in my world. So you can find a link to Justin's book in the show notes. You can find a link to Justin's work. I'm going to include a a page, a link to his website and all the things that he does. And you can listen to some of his music there. Uh, If you've listened to this on iTunes, thank you for listening. And I ask that you would, if you haven't subscribed, that you would do that. If you wouldn't mind leaving a rating or a review. I, I talked to somebody this week and they said, hey, I've been listening to your podcast. And then I realized, oh, oh, I should, I should probably go like, put something down about this. So um, go and rate and review it on iTunes. Also, we're on Spotify. And if you're streaming on my website, thanks for doing that. Um, If you would like to hear more, I am starting this year a more frequent monthly newsletter with just some notes and thoughts and quotes, uh, resources that hopefully will help you along. You can go to my website, kctigret.com, find that, find uh, places where I'll be speaking or leading retreats, uh, other things, other assorted information. But uh, I pray that this week God might shape your attention to something helpful, something wise, and something holy. And until next time, friends, be well, live wisely. Peace. Peace.